You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Tesaro and the Not On My Watch movement. It's time to call for change in ovarian cancer care. Visit www.notonmywatch.com to learn more. On June 18th, the Washington Post brought together the nation's leading health policymakers, top doctors, and researchers for a live event examining the latest developments in cancer prevention, detection, and treatment. In this segment, Acting FDA Commissioner Dr. Ned Sharpless lays out his agenda for approving life-saving cancer drugs, innovative therapies, and clinical trials, and managing product safety. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Lori McGinley. I'm a health and science reporter here at the Washington Post. I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Acting FDA Commissioner Dr. Ned Sharpless. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sharpless has been on the job a little bit over two months at the FDA, and he was previously the director of the National Cancer Institute. So, Dr. Sharpless, let me start by asking, you've been there a whole two months now, (laughs) so how do you hope to make your mark on the FDA? Yeah, I think maybe it's relevant to talk about my background that brought me to the job a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I started my career as a physician, as a cancer doctor, and um, at some point transitioned most from taking care of patients to being more in the lab, running an academic uh, research lab, studying the molecular genetics of cancer, because I, I felt like, you know, we were, at that time, the progress in cancer was very slow and it was frustrating. We were doing the same thing over and over in patients and we really weren't helping them, particularly people with metastatic solid tumors to the degree that I would have liked. And so I became a researcher, and then at some point during that, I also got into the wonderful world of administration by becoming a cancer center director at the University of North Carolina. And uh, from there, the White House called me about uh, leading the NCI in in 2017. And the National Cancer Institute is a great place. That was a terrific job and a a wonderful place to work uh, with these great scientists and this wonderful sense of passion and mission. And, uh, and, and, that, that, and, then, and then, you know, as you mentioned recently, two months ago, back to the, or over to the FDA. So that background, I think, you know, informs my thinking about wh- what the FDA can do. Uh, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the, the way drug discovery and development works. Uh, and so I think that that's an area where we really want to help patients. We have to do that in a streamlined and efficient way. I think. Um, I, at NCI, I was passionate about how we use data. You know, I, I felt like there's a lot of data that uh, could be better aggregated and, and binned and used in a more effective way, and I think that conversation directly translates to the FDA. I think uh, you know, something I'd really focused on at the NCI was developing the workforce, making sure we had the right talent to uh, address the future needs for cancer research, and that, that problem directly translates to the FDA, where you know, staffing the, the, the right people for these um, you know, to regulate these very innovative new products that we have uh, is, is a real, real challenge to the FDA. So there, there's some stuff that I did at the NCI that is sort of uh, is similar to what I would like to do at the FDA, but then there's some things that are FDA specific that are really different. You know, the FDA has a, you know, a role across diseases that beyond cancer. It has food and cosmetics and animal products. It has uh, tobacco control. You know, so a number of areas where uh, uh, some of those, uh, those approaches, you know, developing the workforce using data modernizing clinical trials, you know, things that uh, I know a lot from the cancer world I think are applicable, but there are also areas where, where some of the problems are quite different. Would you expect uh, your agenda to be different from Dr. Gottlieb's, or would it be pretty much the same? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, 
I'm a big fan of Dr. Gottlieb's. We agreed on a number of things, and I think he was, um, in many ways, identified places for the uh, uh, the agency to go that I, I strongly agree with and, and, and plan to continue. But you know, facts on the ground change, and, and there are areas where things uh, have to be done. Uh, you know, we have to change our thinking and and and, uh, and, and change do do mild course corrections. So you know, there'll, there'll be some of that. Are you satisfied with clinical trials at this point? You've been an advocate of making them quicker, cheaper, um, more accessible to people. What more can the FDA do on that? Yeah, I mean, something I learned from my own work in drug discovery is that I don't know is generally appreciated is the, is the, the spiraling cost of clinical trials, you know, the, the per patient costs to accrue a patient to a cancer clinical trial, for example. And uh, that's a real challenge for drug discovery because that, that makes it more expensive and slower and uh, therefore uh, drugs don't, or new therapies don't become available to patients in a, in a way that we would like. And so I, I think, um, you know, at the NCI I was very committed to try and use novel approaches which may include, you know, the, the days of two large randomized trials showing an overall survival advantage I think are no longer appropriate in cancer for, mo for most patients. I mean, we still do some of those. There's a need for that kind of trial in particular situations, but uh, you know, I think we should be very comfortable using other endpoints and other trial designs uh, and even, you know, data from the real world from what happens to patients when they, when they get out and get cared for in the real world. And I think the FDA has been very aggressive about adopting that, particularly in cancer, but in other disease types as well. And uh, I, I think we're, that's, it's going to have to happen because, you know, the, the, as the approaches become more and more precision-based, you know, the, the groups of patients become smaller and smaller. Uh, doing large randomized trials becomes more and more difficult, and therefore, I think novel clinical trials design is really going to be important uh, for both you know the research effort, like at the NIH, and then also uh, the the regulatory effort at the FDA. As a cancer researcher, what are you most excited about? There are advances on the horizon. I've heard you say that you thought maybe we were getting a little blasé about them yeah. because there have been so many the last several years. This is a, this is a speech I've given a couple of times. You know, you know, for example, we just had ASCO, the you know, American Society of Clinical Ecology, this big 25,000 people go to Chicago and talk about cancer for a week. And, uh, you know, this, if you read the coverage of it this year, there's it, it a sense that it was a down ASCO, that there was no big wow it's a quiet moment. And, and uh, you know, I've been in the field long enough. I remember when going to ASCO, there was one year the big story was that we had four different regimens for lung cancer, none of which really worked. You know, they were all equally ineffective, but one was less toxic than the other three, so we found a less deadly way to not treat your cancer very effectively. And, and now, you know, you go to ASCO and, you know, this down ASCO had a positive survival trial in, in breast cancer, great licking data in lung cancer, a new CAR-T product that looked exciting, a KRAS drug or a therapy for KRAS, you know, a target we've been working on for 30 years. So, you know, it's, it's really exciting, actually. And, and if you look at, from the FDA perspective, of where the therapeutic areas, where there's a lot going on, cancer and perhaps, you know, gene therapy or regenerative medicine are the two bright spots, in my opinion. I'm concerned that we don't see that kind of progress in other areas of the FDA. So, you know, neurodegenerative disorders and, uh, you know, antibiotic development. You know, there, there are areas where we have real therapeutic need where the progress does not seem as bright to me. So I'm, I'm asking myself, like, why does cancer seem to work better in terms of novel therapeutic discovery than other areas, and is there something we can do to, from a regulatory perspective to make that, you know, disseminate that across other therapeutic classes? What, what's the answer to that? Well, you know, I, I think uh, part of the success in cancer has been a good biologic understanding of the, uh, of the problem. So, I, I, you know, when I was on the council of the National Institute of Aging, you know, uh, that, that, the NIA has a large portfolio of Alzheimer's uh, research, and I, I was always, you know, arguing that a lot of the funding should really be spent on the basic science of Alzheimer's. I didn't feel like 
we had a sufficient understanding of that disease to do these large therapeutic trials. And, and I think history has proven that you know our therapeutic understand or basic science understanding there needs to be improved. So I, I think you know part of it is a sort of NIH basic science. We got to fund the right questions and, and develop a better understanding. But I, I don't think that's solely the issue. I think. You know, the use of uh, surrogate endpoints to approve drugs in cancer has been a good thing in many ways. It's allowed us to get um, drugs approved. You know, the, the, the cycle times for cancer drugs used to be sort of the longest, you know, very, very long. And uh, it was daunting to a pharmaceutical company to take that on. And by compressing the cycle times using accelerated approval and breakthrough designation and other, you know, kinds of FDA approaches, that's been really beneficial for cancer. Even though that approach was invented pretty much for HIV, it's been very useful in cancer. And, and, and I'm wondering, do we have those kinds of endpoints that you could use for approval in other therapeutic classes so that they could uh, shorten their cycle times and get a path to uh, you know, approval that would be uh, uh, incentivize companies to work on them? Now, we know that you're not responsible for drug pricing. But um, I'm just wondering, what do you think about the high drug prices of the cancer drugs, of the new cancer drugs and gene therapies? Are you concerned about how society will handle it and whether people with lousy insurance won't be able to get access to the drugs? Yeah, I'm concerned in a number of ways. I mean, you know, as, as someone who you know, used to take care of a lot of patients, I, I know people who've sort of had to make the choice between their antifungal medicine after their bone marrow transplant or their rinse, you know? I, I, nobody should be forced to make these kinds of choices. And the high cost of drugs uh, from a, a patient care point of view is very concerning. I also worry about the burden, you know, you know, it's not the FDA problem, but from a payer perspective, you know, the CMS uh, side, you know, the burden of these very expensive uh, therapies on uh, American healthcare costs. So it's, it's very concerning. I think it's also important to say that drugs are expensive for multiple different reasons and they're not and how we should feel about those groups is probably a little different. So, you know, some drugs are, are very expensive or new therapies are very expensive because they're really innovative, highly novel, n new inventions, first in man kind of stuff. And uh, that bothers me when those, are, those therapies are extremely overpriced, but it doesn't bother me as much because, you know, my, my sense is there, somebody's invented something really great and that's good for humanity. And having a drug that works that's expensive is a better problem than having no drug at all, you know, what we see in many therapeutic classes. But the other reason drug, or another reason drugs can be high is because of the sort of what, you know, Scott Gottlieb called the shenanigans, these, uh, you know, pay for delay and, and patent gaming and, or, or these sort of, you know, regulatory sort of virtual monopolies that can get created. And uh, those are areas where the FDA, frankly, has more to do. So we, we can um, uh, try and create a regulatory pathway that prevents those things from happening, and this is, you know, wonky but very important things like how we, how the orange work book and the purple book work or, you know, our policy on 180, 180 day uh, exclusivity period and, you know, these sorts of things that allow generic drugs to come to market. So in, in that area, I think the FDA can support these, you know, market-based uh, pro-competition approaches that uh, can lead to new approvals. I think, you know, there's been a lot of success, the data in, in generic drugs, you know, that, that's an area where the FDA has seen record approvals over the last few years. and. And with support from Congress, you know, that, that, that side of the House is in better shape. Biosimilars is an area that's really developing. And it's still early days, but, you know, we're about to approve. A, we're over 20 now biosimilars approved. And that, that, is, that number's going to grow. And some of the, we just announced guidelines whereby biosimilars could become substitutable, you know, interchangeability guidelines, which would make them even uh, better from a perspective of driving costs down. So I think the FDA can really do some things there to make uh, you know, biologics and, and small molecule drugs available in a sort of generic or biosimilar approach. 
Dr. Gottlieb was a, a big critic of youth vaping, as we all know. And I'm just wondering, the FDA has taken some steps on that, but if uh, underage vaping continues to go up, as it very well might, and the data shows in the next survey, which I think probably will be available this summer, um, that the rates are still going up, what can the FDA do, and what are you prepared to do on that? Yeah, I think it's important to say, you know, I don't really need to wait to see another set of bad numbers this summer to know that this is a problem. I mean, I, I think the FDA is already all in on the topic of youth tobacco use and, and, and youth and vaping. You know, this is, um, has been a, an epidemic, an explosion of youth, uh, youth use, and is of great concern. I think um, perhaps in retrospect, the uh, enforcement discretion period, the FDA initially you know, uh, tried a, a five-year period was uh, too long. I think we all agree that is the case now. In fairness to the FDA, when they made that decision, uh, you know, e-cigarettes weren't the uh, product they are today. They, they sort of looked like more of a niche thing that weren't going to be that appealing to youth. And now, of course, that's no longer true. There's been this explosion of youth use, and and thinking has changed. And so, you know, the FDA uh, is already and will continue to do a number of important things. So we have enforcement. You know, we've sit, we've inspected probably a million plus retailers. We've sent out thousands of warning letters. We've had, you know, uh, we have a, this practice where we send underage people in to buy tobacco products and, and identify the frequency of violative stores. And, you know, in some, in some change, that can be up to 30, 40% of stores will sell to a youth inappropriately. We have a huge education campaign. Um, we are trying to, uh, you know, get into the high schools and the middle schools with an anti-vaping anti message. We've cracked down on these social media influencers, you know, these people that are online that are uh, basically hawking nicotine or nicotine-containing products in a way that is clearly violates FDA advertising rules, and they're not disclosing the products have nicotine, and they're sort of uh, hyping these e-liquids, and they're, you know, appealing-looking young adults with tattoos and muscles and, you know, millions of Instagram followers and, and, and the kind of thing that would be appealing to, you know, a 15-year-old kid. So we're trying to, um, you know, enforcement and education, and then lastly, we got to get the policy right. And as I mentioned, you know, that enforcement discretion period, I think, is too long. And we are now accelerating that. And uh, Do you anticipate further acceleration of that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. As, as you're probably aware, there's been a court decision. So the American Academy of Pediatrics sued and, and, and others sued the FDA over the discretion, enforcement discretion period. And we're working with the judge and the plaintiffs to try and come up with a remedy that is a lot faster than what it was, because as I said, nobody in the FDA anymore really thinks that the 2022 date was a good idea, uh, but yet uh, still something the FDA can actually do. You know, uh, you know th there's uh, perhaps, we don't know how many of these applications we're going to get. It could be a very large number, and each of those requires a review process that's fair and valid, and, and so we have to make sure that we have the staff and capabilities to do that. But, uh, you know, that's not to... That's not an excuse. That's just a fact. We, we have to make sure that we can do this in a way that is um, that really protects American public health. On uh, regular cigarettes, what's the single biggest thing that the FDA could do about that to reduce smoking? Yeah, I don't think there's a single thing. I mean, if there were, we'd have done it, right? You know, I, as, a, as an oncologist, uh, you know, I, I um, just uh, really find uh, combustible cigarettes, you know, traditional cigarettes, to be about you know, one of the most dangerous products in American life. Uh, you know, 600,000 deaths a year in the United States related to tobacco. 30% of cancer deaths are probably still tobacco-associated. And by the way, those numbers are improving, right? So, the, you know, t combustible cigarette use has been declining. 
And so, so you know, it's down to 600,000 deaths a year. So that's really, really, uh, I think, striking about how the problem is uh, per pernicious and hard to, hard to deal with. And there's still probably, you know, 40, 50 million smokers in the United States uh, of combustible cigarettes. So I, I think, um, you know, the things that we've been doing in terms of education and other policies to try and discourage use uh, have been effective. Uh, you know, the question remains, would other forms of nicotine replacement therapy, you know, beyond just gum and lozenges, but like delivered by an electronic nicotine delivery system, would those really help smokers quit? And, uh, you know, there are some data from the UK that that is true. Uh, so I think the United States is obligated to think about the use of those kinds of devices for tobacco cessation in adult smokers. But, you know, it's a really tough public health needle because we don't, at the one, on the one hand, we don't really want to encourage people to use uh, to become nicotine addicts who aren't, particularly kids, but on the other hand, if there is an off-ramp, if you will, a way to quit smoking that's better, then we want to make sure those products are available to smokers. What about the effort to reduce nicotine in cigarettes? And Dr. Gottlieb also talked about banning menthol in cigarettes. Where do those stand? Yeah, we have, we have a couple of, of uh, proposed rules that um, uh, related to flavored cigars, nicotine levels, and menthol ban. All of those uh, went out for sort of the comment, the uh, advance notice of proposed rulemaking, and you know, in aggregate, probably over 100,000 comments, you know, thousands of comments per rule. And we're working through those, looking at the science, and, uh, you, know, tr you know, it's one thing to say you want to, you know, set a level of nicotine, but then the details of that would matter, is, you know, how much should that be? And the last thing you'd want to do is, is set a number that wasn't right and encourage people, you know, if you reduce nicotine levels modestly, for instance, you might just make people smoke more, right? And so, so that you have to think about a threshold that really would get people to quit as opposed to merely encourage increased use. And so there, there are scientific questions related to these policies. There are you know, technical challenges, but I, I'm confident we are going to figure these things out and get, get some, continue on, on those policies. We're out of time, but I have to ask you one more question, which is, do you expect to be nominated to be the permanent commissioner of the FDA? Expect. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd like to be nominated to be the permanent commissioner of the FDA. You know, I learned all the acronyms, right? So I moved over and I figured out that, that branch of federal government. Uh, the FDA is a, a wonderful, marvelous place. The people are these cutting-edge scientists with this great passion and sense of regulatory mission. So I, I think um, you know, it would be a great place to be involved with, but that decision of who runs the FDA is really up to the White House. I've always said I will, you know, I'm a federal servant and I will do what they need me to do, and if that's be acting for a while, I'll do that, and if that's be a confirmed commissioner, I'll do that. I do think, I, I will say, you know, the FDA uh, needs a strong voice in charge of it. It, it has a, a number of, uh, there are a number of uh, sort of problems the FDA has to face with the media, with government, with other, you know, with hiring and, and retention, and, and, and so a, a confirmed commissioner in many ways would be good for the FDA. I think a long period of acting would not be good for the agency. Well, we really are out of time now. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharpless. Uh, we really appreciate your being with us today. And uh, my colleague, Paige Cunningham, will be here with uh, her guest for the next set segment. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.